Welcome to Disability News, this weekly program is put on Radio Eyes, nearly an hour-long program that shares stories that affect the disability community. Many stories are very current and trendy and very educational. The information we provide can come from a wide range of sources, whether it is articles or items that come from NCDJ, Disability Scoop, New Mobility, New York Times, LA Times, Guardian, AARP, Cartwheels Magazine, and many other newspapers, magazines, and other periodicals we can share with you. We'll share as much as we can in this nearly hour-long program. If any information you think is important in regards to your health and you have concerns about it, always consult your doctor, physician, healthcare nurse, or medical expert on that. The information we share is only supposed to be current, educational, and stuff that is informative in the loop. Your reader for today's program is Chris Clements, a board member and volunteer with Radio I. The Radio I would not be possible without other people in the community that supports the great program that we do. For nearly 10,000 Kentuckians, they get material like disability news each week. We'll continue this week's program with the AARP Bulletin. This is a monthly newspaper magazine that comes out. Edition we'll be sharing with you it comes from November of 2022. It's volume 63, number 9. You can also learn more about AARP by going to the website at www.aarp.org and go to the section called Bulletin. The front page article is stated 2023 Special Report How to Stay Healthy This Winter. This will include things about COVID, what's coming, your anti code arsenal. Vaccines, what you need to know, flu, COVID symptom decoder, long COVID, what is it, boost your immunity, and this year's flu, why we were worried. We'll share that and so much more in today's edition. As a feature today, we like to share a special quote that comes from a very special individual. His quote is this, my wish was to see us listed right at the top as far as the weapons meets go. This was written by an Air Force pilot, Lieutenant Colonel James H. the III. He was 99 years old and a Tuskegee Airman. Some medicine premiums to drop. Medicare Part B's standard monthly premium will fall to $164.90 in 2023. It's a $5.20 decrease from this year. Welcome news after 2022 when the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services also known as CMS, hit beneficiaries with the highest ever increase. Part B covers doctor visits, diagnostic tests, and other outpatient services. Most Medicare beneficiaries have Part B premiums deducted directly from their monthly Social Security payments, which will rise next year by 8.7% because of this year's inflation. The 2023 premium decrease makes good on statements earlier this year by Health and Human Services Secretary Xavier Bercaro. He noted that the Medicare spending on Adulam, an expensive new Alzheimer's drug, was not going to be nearly as high as expected, generating savings that would be passed on to beneficiaries in 2023. Spending on Part B services is also projected to be less than anticipated. Today's announcement of lower Part B premiums and deductibles is welcome news for seniors 
who's struggling with rising costs due to inflation, says Nancy Limon, an AARP Executive Vice President and Chief Advocacy and Engagement Officer. There was more good news for some Medicare users. The average monthly premium for Medicare Advantage plan is expected to decrease to $18 in 2023, down nearly 8% from 2022. CMS projects that 31.8 million people will be enrolled in these private insurance plans in 2023. CMS also announced that the average monthly premium for Part D prescription drug plans will decrease slightly from $32.08 in 2022 to $31.50 in 2023. And the annual Part B deductible of 2023 is also decreasing from $226. That's a $7 incline. New evidence may cut dementia risk. That step counter on your smartphone could improve your chances of avoiding dementia, according to a large-scale study recently published in JAMA Neurology. That's J-A-M-A Neurology. The key finding, walking 9,800 steps a day reduces your risk of cognitive impairment by as much as half and walking 3,800 steps a day improves your chances of avoiding dementia by 25%. Researchers in Australia and Denmark monitored the daily step counts of more than 78,000 adults between ages 40 and 79. After a seven-year period, researchers found a lowered risk of cognitive impairment among those who hit the step goals. I think this reinforces recommendations that we can make to people that walking is likely to be beneficial, says Ronald Peterson, MD, Director of Mayo Clinic, Alzheimer's Research Center. Social Security urged to improve service. Congress has urged the Social Security Administration to address a flood of customer complaints that have grown even louder in the aftermath of pandemic-related shutdowns. In a recent letter to SSA, Acting Commissioner Kolosa Kajiska, leaders of the House Ways and Means Committee, said this, Many people, some of who are elderly, have had to wait more than six hours to get help. People have had to come back multiple days to just to get service. Those who called the agency didn't fare any better. In late summer, callers to the National Social Security number waited about 31 minutes on average to speak to an agent up from six minutes a year earlier. Field officials were mostly shut down by COVID for nearly two years until April, and they have been struggling since reopening. Kajaska responded with an outline of plans to improve service, but that won't happen overnight. Agency-wide, we are at our lowest staffing level in 25 years, driven by years of insufficient funding. Social Security spokesperson Nicole Tingerman said in an email to AARP. AARP's Chief Advocacy and Engagement Officer Nancy Lamone wrote the agency in September to urge improved services. Seniors and those with disabilities simply should not be asked to wait in line outside in inclement weather to get the services they need. Task Force calls for routine anxiety testing. A top panel of experts has said for the first time that adults up to age 64 should routinely get screened for anxiety, even people with no symptoms of stress or emotional duress. The U.S. Preventive Services Task Force says such screening could help identify anxiety disorders early.
This is, I think, sorely needed and sorely overdue, says Robert Holduck, MD, psychiatrist at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, Western Psychiatric Hospital. Anxiety disorders are among the most common mental health issues in the United States, with more than 15% of adults reporting symptoms of anxiety in 2019, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and that was before COVID-19. Untreated anxiety can lead to clinical depression. It can have an impact on everything from blood pressure to ulcers and chronic pain disorders. The draft recommendations exclude adults 65 and older because there isn't enough evidence to show the benefits of screening older adults outweigh any potential downsides. One concern is that placing older people on some anxiety drugs can cause side effects like impaired cognition and an increased risk of falls, the National Institute of Health says. In other news, Medicare fraud sees COVID spike. In a rush to provide needed new services, the program created opportunities for scammers, court case shows. This was written by Joe Eaton. Fraudulent Medicare billings were already a significant problem in pre-pandemic times, costing taxpayers tens of billions of dollars years by all estimates. Now, a rising tide of court cases in a new internal report revealed that new channels of Medicare fraud opened during the COVID pandemic in large part due to a rush to meet newly emerging health care needs of older adults that left the program vulnerable to falsified billings. In one example, the Office of Inspector General IG at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services released a study in September that said it had already detected potentially fraudulent buildings related solely to telehealth coverage from more than 1,700 health providers, totaling roughly $128 million. Increased telehealth services were approved for coverage shortly after the start of the pandemic. Criminal cases currently working their way through federal courts show other types of pandemic-related ripoffs that Medicare investigators are now up against. In early September, a federal jury convicted Mark Sheena, the president of Silicon Valley Medical Technology Company, of masterminding a conspiracy that led to $77 million in fraudulent charges to Medicare and private insurers. Sheena's company, Ariad Corporation, marketed a COVID test that was not authorized by the Food and Drug Administration, also known as the FDA, and paired it with an expensive test for 120 food and other allergies ranging from cold fish to hornet stings. Insurers of patients who received the COVID test were also charged for the allergy testing. The indictment says, also in California, health testing laboratory owners, Emron Shams and Lords Navarra, face charges of defrauding Medicare out of $214 million. Prosecutors said the partners use COVID testing as a pretext to add on expensive and unnecessary respiratory pathogen tests while also paying illegal bribes to medical markers for directing doctors' orders to their labs. 
Shams and Narvaez have a history of targeting federal and state health care programs. Both have been previously excluded from billing Medicare after criminal convictions, according to court records, and were not eligible to rejoin the program. In New York, Perry Franken, MD, cardiologist, is charged with defrauding Medicare and Medicaid of more than $1.3 million. Federal indictment charges that Franklin used patient billing information acquired from COVID tests at a mobile testing lab to bill the federal health care programs for COVID-related services. Never received, and office visit prosecutors say never took place. Lawyers from Shams, Navarro, and Frankel did not respond to AARP calls for comment. Been fully documented in 2020. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, also known as CMS, issued an estimate for all forms of proper payments, fraud, and mistakes on Medicare doctors and hospital visits at 6.27%, or about $52 billion of the $830 billion spent on Medicare. Then U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions, however, told the AARP Bolton in a 2018 interview he was confident the actual amount of Medicare fraud alone exceeded 10%. Malcolm Sparrow, a Harvard University professor and leading expert on Medicare fraud, says no one knows the number of Medicare dollars lost to fraud, but knows that he's seen estimates as high as 20%. <clears throat> the CMS is 6.27% estimate, he says. That is based on measurement methodology that uses a very weak audit protocol and therefore doesn't detect fraudulent or abusive claims. Sparrow says the pandemic made stopping Medicare fraud harder. A sense of urgency inclines policymakers to downplay or discount the fraud risk as they rush to meet public needs, he says. He cites telehealth as an example. Medicare administrators loosened telehealth restrictions early in the pandemic to allow patients to meet with their doctors by telephone or outline rather than visit their medical offices. They moved improved access to care, but also likely opened a program to a wave of fraud investigators found. Many telehealth providers filed duplicate bills billed for both virtual and in-person visits for the same care, charge for visits lasting three hours or more, and billed for seemingly impossible numbers of patient visits, according to Inspector General's report. Two family Medicare medicine providers, for example, billed telehealth services nearly every single day over the course of a year, with more than 10 services for each patient. Another physician billed telehealth charges for 400 patients and ordered 109 different types of medical equipment and supplies for them, totaling more than $9 billion. Andrew Van Landum, OIG Senior Counselor for Policy, says leads to potential fraud cases have been passed on to the agency that runs Medicare. Each of these providers needs some additional follow-up, and some of that may include criminal investigation, he says. Kirk Orgoski, a former federal prosecutor who created the U.S. Department of Justice Medicare Fraud Strike Force, 
says he thinks the loosened rules and regulations around telehealth and other services drew fraudsters who previously exploited other Medicare vulnerabilities. COVID simply gave them new mod models to use to steal, he says. Criminals to steal money. Whatever you did, they would have adapted. Joe Eaton is an investigative reporter and journalist professor who wrote this special edition for AARP. The next article is called Stay Healthy This Winter. As we mentioned earlier, the feature story of this, COVID lingers, flu season at hand, and germs are everywhere. Here's how you can reduce your risks. This article is written by Jessica Magala. If there's one thing we can agree on, is that nearly three years of pandemic living has left us sick of sickness. But as sure as fall leads to winter, so will virus season soon be upon us. COVID-19 variants now outnumber Tom Brady's Super Bowl wins, the flu's latest model in the showroom, and more than 200 viruses lurking out there are capable of causing the common cold. Here's the thing. You have the power to reduce your risk of getting sick significantly. What's important is to start taking the precautions you need today to reduce your risk of getting a cold, the flu, and COVID, and make it through the winter healthy and safe. So we called up the experts and pressed them to answer some of your most common questions. Question one, COVID seems much milder now. Do I still have to worry about it? Response, yes, but a majority of Americans have gotten COVID at least once. The virus that causes SARS-CoV-2 continues to evolve and mutate, sending thousands of people to the hospital every day. No one knows exactly where this bug is headed, says Pangus Galastus, MD, assistant professor of pulmonary and critical care medicine at John Hopkins School of Medicine. He's predicting more cases as the weather cools with a potential wave of yet another subvariant of the Omnicore variant. You already know the immune system weakens with age, making infections more precarious and recovery time much longer. More than 75% of COVID deaths have been in those aged 65 and over, a risk and increases if you have underlying medical conditions. But there's another issue to keep in mind, a prolonged recovery time and the bed rest that can go with it puts you at an increased risk for cadre of complications from loss of muscle mass and strength. A prolonged immobility and falls lead to potential downward spiral. That's true for COVID, the flu, and even the common cold. Trying to fight your way back to where you were before can be a tremendous battle, says Magnella Berdorowski, MD, Section Chief of Geriatric Medicine at Rush University Medical Center. For a fit, younger adult, common cold or the flu can be an inconvenience. For a frail, older adult, it can literally knock them off their feet, he says. Bottom line is this on COVID. It's still out there, it's serious, and it's not alone. Next question, should I get the new COVID booster? And if so, when? For a person 65 and older, 
being up to date on your vaccinations reduces the likelihood of heading to the hospital by 94%. So yes, you want the booster. Right now is the perfect time for it, assuming you've already had the initial vaccine. The recently introduced booster targets the most contagious of the Omnicore subvariants. So adding it to your previous vaccination is like donating a full body suit of immunity armor. And since it's also the right time of the year to get your flu vaccine, you combine them into one simple appointment. Next question. I'm just getting over COVID. Should I wait to get the booster? Yes. According to Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, you may consider waiting three months from onset of the symptoms or a positive test before getting the booster. That gives your immune system time to reset its own defense before you add the additional protection of the vaccine. If you experience rebound COVID, wait until three months after return of symptoms or a positive test. However, if you suffer from chronic liver or lung disease, diabetes, heart problems, or other health issues that put you at an increased risk, consult your healthcare provider about vaccine timing, says Cameron Wolf, MD, infectious disease specialist at Duke University School of Medicine. Next question, will we stop needing these shots? Maybe is the response. But the more likely scenario is that COVID boosters become an annual routine. The goal is to get into a pattern similar to a once a year flu shot where companies can modify the vaccine to stay up to date on whatever variants are floating around at the time. Ideally, we are looking at situations where they are combined with the flu shot to make it easy, Wolf says. But we're not there yet because unlike the flu, COVID is still a year-round threat. Next question, how can I keep my immune system naturally? Response, there are no injections or vitamins that will produce a supercharged immune system, says infectious disease experts Lawrence Lernasi, MD, chairman of the Department of Medicine at Mainline Health System. Not smoking, not drinking, excessive exercising regularly, preventive immunizations, and following a healthcare diet are your best bets. That said, a recent study found our immune systems respond more vigorously to both COVID and flu vaccines if we perform 90 minutes of light to moderate intensity exercise about 30 minutes after receiving the vaccine. And there were no reported increases in side effects. While the study was small, it may make sense to plan a long walk or other lightly intensity movement post-vaccination. These may occur in roughly one to four cases. Studies show that Paxlovid does not reduce the risk of rebound infections, but it does greatly reduce the risk of hospitalization and death. A leading hypothesis is that the rebound we're seeing is no different than stopping an antibiotic prematurely and allowing the microbe to come back. The antiviral killed off the amount needed to eliminate the infection, but not all the virus. So it grew back like a weed, Galassa said. Importantly though, it doesn't mean that the drug failed. It's still very effective at preventing serious illness when taken appropriately. Lawrence adds, that said, if your symptoms do come back, 
you'll have to start your five-day isolization all over again according to the CDC guidelines. Next question. Should I ask for antivirals if I test positive for COVID? Response, yes. Early treatment with Paxlovid or Lavigeril, another antiviral, can keep individuals out of the hospital and minimize the risk of death, says Thomas Tossi, MD, Senior Policy Advisor for the White House COVID-19 Response Team. But getting in drugs into the hands of those who are most vulnerable is critical. Historically, we've always seen underutilization of treatments for our older populations. And this is why older individuals are often the most vulnerable groups, he points out. Our older Americans are, once again, bearing the highest burden of severe outcomes from COVID-19, including higher rates of hospitalization. Fortunately, death, Tossie says, reach out to your doctor about antivirals if you suspect COVID. Next question. I've heard Florono are getting sick with the coronavirus and the flu at the same time. Can that really happen? In the study of response, in the study on nearly 7,000 people with COVID in the United Kingdom, about 8% of them were sick with the second virus. About half of those cases involved the flu. Patients who had Florona were significantly more likely to require ventilization and to die in a hospital. That's another reason to get both the flu vaccine and the COVID booster this year. The looming danger of the upcoming flu season has the CDC on alert. And this year, its recommendation is that adults 65 plus get the higher dose or a just-evaded flu vaccine rather than a standard dose. The flu is a very serious illness in older people, says Nina Blackman, MD geriatric medicine specialist and assistant professor of medicine at New York University, Lagan Health. One study in New England Journal of Medicine found that older adults are six times more likely to suffer a heart attack in the seven days after catching the flu. Next question. If you got really whacked by COVID, does that mean I'll be hit hard by the flu too? Response. Not necessarily. Our immune systems are as unique as fingerprints, Lawrence says. Overall, in the absence of another medical condition, like lung disease, for example, that leaves you vulnerable to respiratory infections. Your response to COVID doesn't predict how you'll handle the flu and vice versa, he says. Here's five risk factors you never knew about. The surprising things that are good and bad for immunity. Hugging. After COVID, Hugs have been replaced by air high fives among those you love, though most frequently embracing is associated with less severe symptoms of illness. According to the Carnegie Mellon University researchers, that's likely because social support counters stress, improving the body's infection fighting abilities. Shift work. People who work the midnight shifts are 1.2 times more likely to get struck down by the cold or flu compared with those who work more traditional hours and their like illnesses are more likely to be severe, according to a study in hospital workers published in the American Journal of Epidemiology. This shift in circadian rhythm may affect immune system function, making you more vulnerable to infection. 
low-carb diets. Those who ate low-carbohydrate, high-protein diets were more likely to develop moderate to severe COVID infections compared with those following a plant-based diet. Field fruits and veggies and whole grains, according to a study in BMJ Nutrition, Prevention and Health. Plant-based diets are packed with nutrients that fight respiratory illness. Sleeping. Logging fewer than six hours of sleep per night is associated with four times the risk of catching a cold compared with sleeping more than seven hours. Research and journal. Sleep found in adequate Zs may impair the activity of immune cells. In sunshine. Spending time in the sun has been shown to protect against the flu possibly because it activates reduction of vitamin D when decreases the risk of respiratory infections. The next article read in Your Health AARP is seven surprising causes of back pain. A few lifestyle adjustments can help prevent chronic lumbar challenges. Article was written by Beth Howard. At least eight out of 10 of us will experience back pain at one time or another, sometimes these aches start to resolve in just a few days, but in many cases, back pain can last weeks, months, even years, and figuring out the cause can require some serious sleuthing. Often there's a mystery to the diagnosis, says A.N. Shammy, M.D., Professor and Chief of Spine Surgery at David Giffen School of Medicine at UCLA. Seek medical attention. If your back pain doesn't go away after a few days of over-the-counter pain medication or a brief period of rest, especially if it's not associated with a special activity. While your doctor can rule out an injury or other serious cause, it might be up to you to help suss out what's triggering the pain. It could be one of these unexpected causes. 1. You aren't drinking enough milk. It's not the milk per se, but the vitamin D, it comes with it. Studies have found that those with the most severe back pain had the lowest levels of vitamin D. The vitamin's effect on bone health could help explain the connection. Research in the journal Menopause found that among postmenopause women considering spine surgery, those with severe D deficiencies had more severe disc degeneration and back pain. Stronger bones can help protect against back pain and other disabling issues. Consult your physician about your vitamin D levels. UCLA Shame says, Number two, your core is weak. The muscles in your midsection make up the core, says physical therapist Karina Wu of Active Care Physical Therapy in New York City. Weak core can mean chronic back pain. To help build strength, sit or stand straight. That is, there's a string attached to the top of your head, pulling you upward. Now tighten your vulnerable muscles. Try not to move your pelvis, ribs, or shoulders. Hold that position as long as you're comfortable. Number three, you have a new grandchild. That's, they're delicious, delightful, and heavier than they look. It's been a while since you lowered an infant into a crib or picked a toddler in mid-tantrum off the floor. You might be feeling it in your lower back. When lifting the baby, widen your base, 
or support by spreading your feet a little apart and bring your center close to the ground. Be sure to hold small children close to you when you are moving them from the floor to crib or from the ground to car seat, says physical therapist Matthew Menard, owner of Human Movement Optimization in Charlotte, North Carolina. Imagine there's a circle around your feet and stay within that zone, he says. Number four, your bedroom isn't dark enough. Even during your sleep, the body can recognize when there's too much light in your bedroom. Your heart rate increases, your quality of sleep suffers, and there's a clear association between poor sleep and back pain. Sleep helps our muscles to relax and get rid of lactic acid buildup. Shelby says, plus sleep deprivation heightens your sensitivity to pain. Rest also keeps disc in good condition. The jelly-like core of a normal health disc is 80% water, Shimon says. When you lie down and rest, your disc can refill for the day ahead. This gets more important as we get older and our discs become drier to get the light, get blackout shades, and ban digital disservices from the bedroom. Number five. You sit and you sit some more. One study showed that people who sat for 75% of workday were poorly significantly more back and neck pain than those who sat less than 20 to 75% of the time. But even if you're not chained to a desk, chair all day, sitting in the same position for too long can let pain creep in. Keep stiffness at bay. Observe the 30-minute rule. Don't let yourself idle in the same position for more than half an hour. You can even set an alert on your phone to remind you all you need to do is get up, move around, walk, or stretch a bit. Number six, your shoes weren't made for walking. Proper shoes can create instability and trigger back pain. The natural curve of the spine can be affected because you're either leaning towards or backwards to stabilize that foot, says Katiski Machada, MD, assistant professor of orthopedic surgery at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. In general, supportive walking or running shoes should be on your feet when you're logging most of your daily steps. Leave flip-flops, flimsy sandals, or high heels for special occasions. And finally, number seven, your legs don't go toe-to-toe. -to -toe. About one in three of us have legs that aren't exactly the same length, says Ryan Inky, MD, a physical medicine and rehabilitation specialist in Rockford, Illinois. Oftentimes, and sometimes you're born with auto injuries or arthritis can also cause one leg to become shorter. Difference in leg length alters the normal biomechanics or walking or standing. Inky's adds that puts unusual stress or strain on one side of the body versus the other. The solution may be as simple as adding a lift into the shoe or the shorter side, but the physical therapy can also help. He notes. We're next going to be reading from the Office for Aging and Disabled Citizens. This magazine newsletter comes out monthly. This article from OADC shares stories and contents over the last edition. This is issue number 65, November of 2022 edition. 
10 tips for family caregivers. Number one, seek support from your caregivers. You are not alone. Number two, take care of your own health so you can be strong enough to take care of your loved ones. Number three, set offers of help and suggest specific things people can do to help you. Number four, learn how to communicate effectively with your doctors. Number five, Caregiving is hard work, so take respite breaks often. Number six, watch out for signs of depression and don't delay getting professional help when you need it. Number seven, be open to new technologies that can help you care for your loved ones. Number eight, organize medical information so it's up to date and easy to find. Number nine, make sure legal documents are in order. And finally, number 10, give yourself credit for doing the best you can in one of the toughest jobs out there. To learn more, go to the Caregiver Action Network. If you want to learn more about research and advancement dimension treatment, Dr. Cooper has a wide range of discussions. He provides therapies and medications on dimension and up-to-date research. You can contact him at 502 6291234. Another great program is on Mindful Mondays, where it talks about strategies your parents can use to help worry about less control over your child and family. This features Dr. Andre Kling, Olivia Campbell, and Peyton Andres. Another one is called Financial Fridays. Budgeting can be tough. You gotta gain control of your money, featuring Maria Holmes. Seizing the opportunity to develop dementia programs successfully program funding, planning, and delivery. In a webinar with Aaron Long of the Administration for Community Living and Sazi Schufman of the National Alzheimer's Dementia Resource Center, they'll talk about Administration on Aging, Administration for Community Living and Alzheimer's Disease Programs Initiative, also known as ATPI, and the grants associated with it presentation will include a discussion of the ADPI program and describe ADPI grant planning process and related expert technical assistance providing through the grant period. The benefits of developing dimension programs that are tailored to the needs of your Pacific community will be highlighted. The webinar also includes insights from existing prior ADPI grantees about their experiences developing and implementing dimension pilot projects. If you'd like to learn more, the Crime Victim Advocates at JFCS, which is Jewish Family Career Services, helps Jefferson County adults 60 and older who have suffered financial exploitations, domestic violence, physical, emotional, or sexual abuse, robbery, burglary, caregiving, neglect, and so much more. You can reach Troy at 502 322 1918. Another great organization that can help you out with the winter season is Project Warm. They're offering free energy workshops. Project Warm provides a positive impact on families and the community through weatherization services, energy conservation, and education. The benefits of the service are following. One, they lower energy usage. Two, they reduce climate pollution. Three, they affordable housing. Four, they improve health. Five, they increase safety. And six, 
they are neighborhood stability. SSI Social Security benefits will see its biggest rise in more than 40 years. We shared this story earlier with you through the AARP newsletter, but it's great news for those who do get SSI benefits. Are you experienced diverse older adults living in dementia? It's another great webinar coming up that's intended to educate healthcare, social service agency focused professionals, anyone else interested in brain health about their unique experiences, device diverse older adults in their care team in dealing with dementias and mild cognitive impairment. The webinar shares the personal experiences of those diagnosed with dementia and mild cognitive impairment and experiences of their care team. These personal experiences will touch on how stigma around dementia have affected their lives. The webinar also examines findings about us against Alzheimer's A-list and a survey will follow with a Q&A session. Another story to share about is the end of life care for older adults, history of trauma and family caregivers. Another great chance, the Personal Centered Trauma Inform, also known as PCTI, principles into end-of-life care. PTCI care is a holistic approach to service provision developed by the JFNA Center on Holocaust Survivor Care and Institute on Aging and Trauma that infuses knowledge about trauma into agency programs and procedures to promote the well-being and empowerment of trauma survivors. Community for Aphasia-Related Disorders, also known as CARD, C-A-R-D, offers some great stuff too. May you want to reach out to them at 270-745-4214. If you'd like to learn more about the Office of Aging Disabled Citizens, also known as OADC, and get their newsletter and get more information, you can reach Allie Woosley. She's the OADC coordinator. She's located with the Office Department of Resilience and Community Services, located at the Edison Center, which is at 701 West Ormsby Street, Suite 201, Louisville, Kentucky, 40203. Her phone number is 502-574-5092. You can also reach by email at allison dot w-o-o-s-l-e-y at L-O-U-I-S-V-I-L-L-E-K-Y dot G-O-V. Her phone number again is 502-574-5092. Next week's edition, we'll read more from the OADC and share with you the December news of that newsletter. We next will turn our attention to a magazine called Cartwheels. This is a special publication put up by Norton's Children and Norton Children's Hospital Foundation. This is the winter 2022-2023 edition. We spread this material before and share stories that do affect the disability community, also about health and other well-being. Much like everything else, which has been a hot-button issue, is the flu of 2022. Is your child protected? The Merrick Academy of Pediatrics has released its recommendations for protecting children against the flu. Getting the flu vaccine remains the best way to protect children against complications from influenza. Here's what you need to know about the flu vaccines. Who? 
All healthy cages ages the kids six months and older. Six months, eight years, get two doses if ever, if never immunized, or one flu vaccine if dosed before July 1st of 2022. What is it? Protects against four major strains of philopozema expected to circulate this season. Why? Shot can keep a child from getting the flu, even if the uh, shot doesn't fully prevent it. Being vaccinated likely will make the illness less severe and go away faster. Where? All Norton Children's Medical Group offices are offering the flu vaccine. How? Call your child's pediatrician or go to nortonschildrens.com backslash pediatricians find one and make appointment online. So what are the signs of flu for kids or really any individual? First, fever or feeling feverish chills. Two, a cough. Three, sore throat. Four, runny or stuffy nose. Five, muscle or body aches. Six, headache. Seven, fatigue. Eight, vomiting and diarrhea. Be careful and get your flu vaccine and be safe this winter season. Next article is called Living in a Fast Food World. Ways to Recognize Unhealthy Weight in a Child. We're living in the age of go, go, go. It's easy to turn to fast food, pre-made meals and snacks on the run. This lifestyle also is contributing to about one in six kids in the United States being overweight or obese. Could your child be one of them? In addition to eating unhealthy meals and consuming too much sugar, screen time is a big culprit in the weight gain. Kids' lifestyles have become more sedentary than in the past. They are spending unhealthy amount of time in front of the TVs, computers, and other devices, says CNU Khan, D.O., Pediatrician Norton's Children's Medical Group in Fern Creek. Kids under the age of two should have very little screen time, and kids over two should have no more than one hour screen time a day. Child obesity can be caused by the following reasons. One, genetics and his family history. Two, stress. Three, mental health issues. Without recognition of proper intervention at a young age, obese children may struggle with obesity their whole entire life, leading to a number of serious and potentially life-threatening health conditions, Dr. Kahn said. These can include respiratory issues, joint pain, type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, and high cholesterol. What can parents do? The best thing parents can do is lead by example. Eat a diet filled with fruits, vegetables, and lean protein. Drink plenty of water and be active most days of the week. Avoid making weight an issue of fitting into the clothes or comparing appearances to other kids, Dr. Kahn said. Help your child feel comfortable in their skin no matter what and work on creating healthy habits. Ways to create healthy habits for your whole family? One, reduce food with added sugar. Two, add more vegetables to meals and snacks. Three, take at least one walk per day or do some type of physical activity. Four, stick to a bedtime routine. 
What are the red flags? Your child may be unhealthy weight. First of all, birth weight over 8.8 pounds. Two, rapid weight gain in the first year of life. Three, rapid catch-up growth between birth and age two. Four, spending more than eight hours a day watching TV at age three. Five, sleeping less than 10 and a half hours a night at the age of three. Because we know how studies the parents' perception of their child's weight can be skewed. It's important that your child sees a pediatrician regularly who can take objective look at how your child is developing. Your pediatrician is your family's partner in maintaining a healthy weight and guiding you on making lifestyle changes to set your child up to thrive into an adulthood. Need a pediatrician? Find one close to you. You can go to NortonChildrens.com backslash pediatrician. Heck, teach teens to cook and eat healthy. Norton's Children Prevention and Wellness offers a Growing Cooks two-week basic cooking class series for teens who are aged 13 to 18 years of age. Parents and gardens are encouraged to attend with their teen. Learn how to cook recipes, use local and fresh ingredients. Participants also learn kitchen safety cooking skills, and healthy eating. Families receive a gift card to a local grocery store to offset grocery costs upon completion of class. Check this out by going to nordschildrens.com backslash classes and events. Wendy Novak Diabetes Institute, working to create top diabetes program in the country. Pictured in this article is three special individuals, David Novak, Wendy Novak and Assy Novak Butler. David Novak said this in the article. We are confident with a strategic partnership with Norton's Children and Norton's Healthcare and the outstanding leadership of Dr. Krupper. Winter guests, one of the most renowned endocrinologists in the world. We can continue to climb the rankings and become the best practice institute others will want to implement. We'll see the impacting not only Louisville but in the entire world. A 15 million lead gift from the Lift a Life Novak Family Foundation has created the Wendy Novak Diabetes Institute. It is a starting point of $60 million vision to expand diabetes care for children and adults with the goal of building the top diabetes institute in the country. We are confident with the strategic partnership of Norton's Children's and Norton's Healthcare Outstanding leadership of Dr. Krupper Wintergast, one of the most renowned endocrinologists in the world. We can continue to climb the rankings and become the best practice institution others will want to emulate, said David Novak, founder of Lift Alive Novak Family Foundation, and former children and chief executive officer of Young Brands Incorporated, headquarters in Louisville. We see this impacting not only Louisville, but the entire world. The Wendy Novak Diabetes Institute will work to become a national center of excellence by expanding and elevating diabetes care services across the region by helping children and adults with diabetes manage their condition. The Institute will make it easier for patients for, to transition from pediatric to adult care. The most recent gift, in addition to the Lift a Life Novak Family Foundations, $5 million gift in 2013 
to establish the Wendy Novak Diabetes Center, the institute predecessor at this time. The goal was to create a comprehensive diabetes care center offering education and treatment for type 1 diabetes to thousands of children and young adults. Current Wendy Novak Diabetes Center is a service in Norton's Children's Hospital. It is recognized as having one of the nation's top diabetes programs. The hospital is located 16th in the United States in News and World Report's 2022 rankings for pediatric diabetes and endocrinology. The program ranked 18th in 2020 and 2021, fueled by funding from the Lift Alive Novak Family Foundation. The new Wendy Novak Diabetes Institute will expand care to the adults and produce more patient support through expansion of the diabetes educational program. Diabetes care and education specialists are key to helping patients live their life with diabetes from managing insulin and medication to guidance on eating a healthy diet and getting regular exercise. Krupper A. Wintergast, MD. Wendy L. Novak, Chair of Pediatric Diabetes Care and Clinical Research, Pediatric Endocrinologist, Norton's Children Endocrinology, affiliated with the University of Louisville School of Medicine. Educators also provide invaluable support and assistance to patients between office visits. Living with diabetes is an enormous burden, and educators are able to help each child and adult face every one of life's challenges. Nearly half a million children and adults in Kentucky have type 1 or type 2 diabetes, a rate of 14%, making Kentucky the eighth worst in the nation, according to Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Norton Healthcare, Norton's children provide care for more than 69,000 patients with diabetes, spanning 137 counties in Kentucky and southern Indiana. Of those, approximately 1,400 are children. Most patients with type 2 diabetes have their care managed by a primary care provider. Adding special resources to help our patients manage their disease is key to helping patients manage their diabetes and live long, active, healthy lives, said Dr. Winogers, who also serves as Division Chief of Pediatric Necrology for the University of Louisville School of Medicine Department of Pediatrics. Institute will focus on developing and expanding four key areas to support adults and children living with all forms of diabetes. One, facility expansion. Two, workforce. Three, specialty care programming. And four, research. In addition to the $15 million gift, the Norton's Children's Hospital Foundations and Norton Healthcare Foundation have committed to raising another $12 million for a total of $27 million investment. So far, $2 million has already been raised. In the coming year, the goal is to raise additional funds to research to reach the $60 million vision. The Wendy Novak Diabetes Institute will be the premier location for the treatment, education, and research of diabetes regionally and nationally, said Lynn Meyer, EDDRNCRFE, Senior Vice President and Chief Development Officer with Norton Healthcare. We appreciate the Novak family and the community for getting behind the Institute. 
which will build confidence in all those touched by diabetes, empowering them to the long, active, healthy lives. I'm looking forward to this new chapter and to build our exciting vision for the future, Dr. Winnegast said. This article was provided by Maggie Rutker. Last part, help make a difference for kids with diabetes. The Wendy Novak Diabetes Institute has grown in the past two decades from a staff of one physician to a team of 30 specialists supported by highly skilled, compassionate staff, all focused on providing quality of care and the patient and family experience. The growth has been possible with support from the community and generous donators such as the Lift Life Novak Family Foundation. It includes addition to funding the Christensen's Family Sports and Activity Program, which provides individualized monitoring and education for active children with type 1 diabetes on and off the playing field. It participates in research in the management of diabetes in young athletes. Also included is a $600,000 donation from the Price family that established a Nora Price Diabetes Educator, a Nora Price Fellow in Pediatric Endocrinology Positions through Norton's Healthcare Hospital and the University of Louisville School of Medicine Department of Pediatrics. $1.5 million donation from the Lift of Life Novak Family Foundation, paired with $500,000 from the Norton's Children's Hospital Foundation, funded the Jack Henderson Chair of Pediatric Endocrinology and Diabetes. Multiple new endowed chairs, physicians and programs also have been established thanks to donations and the Norton's Children's Hospital Foundation, including the Philip Diabetes Management, the Norton's Children's Hospital Foundation Diabetes Research Endowment, and the Carol B. McFerrin Chair of Pediatric Diabetes Research. To find out more and how you can be part of this and save lives, the Wendy Novak Diabetes Institute and Norton's Children's Hospital, you can call 502-420-4299. We hope that today you enjoyed Disability News. This weekly program is put on by Radio Wide, shares a wide range of stories and current events that affect the disability community. This program would not be possible without donors and supporters that make Radio Wide do what we need to do. Your reader today was Chris Clements, a board member and volunteer of Radio Wide. We'll be back next week for the full more of stories for our Disability News. Have a great day, take care, and have a great day.